Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Phil Lister is an adult and child psychiatrist and psychotherapist, as is his wife. Liza, the second of their three children, died 25 years ago at age six after a two-year journey with cancer. Dr. Lister works in private practice, often with families facing loss or severe medical illness, turning his experience to the benefit of others. He also teaches the art of psychotherapy at Columbia and Mount Sinai Medical Centers, He is a therapist in the phase three study of MDMA assisted therapy for the treatment of PTSD. Phil, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Take us back to the beginning of that cancer diagnosis with your daughter. So, um, Right around Liza's fourth birthday, she had a series of seemingly minor medical symptoms that led us to um, go to the pediatrician and get her checked. And they were just a little bit odd. On one occasion, she had um, a pain in her hip and that was unusual Mm -hmm. yeah Um, a few days later when that resolved she had a pain under her eye maybe it was a sinus infection but she hadn't had that before and um then she had i think it was a pain in her neck and she was sort of holding her head to the side so three odd symptoms in rapid succession led to um, maybe we should do a blood test. Okay. And the blood test was um, way, way off. Her just a basic, lungs, yeah, her just basic blood test. Were, okay. yeah, were, one of them was extremely elevated and um, we got a call to come into the pediatrician's office the next morning, which was not the customary thing to um, hear what was up. And I think it was at that point, I remember um, a moment sort of lying in bed before we got up with my wife. Could this be leukemia? Because, you know, we'd both been to medical school. Right. And leukemia is you know, deceptive, and it's common. Anyway. um, What did your wife say when you said that? I mean, I don't remember vividly. I think some version of an unspoken holy shit. Um, (laughs) It's possible. Um, We were alarmed at, at the call and knew that there was some, something serious to hear. I wondered about whether we needed to bring Liza 
um, or whether, I mean, I think we had to bring Liza because we didn't have anybody to leave her with, but um, I felt some anxiety about having her hear the news with us. Sure. Anyway, she was on the floor playing with some blocks or something. And the pediatrician raised the possibility that this might be um, a more dire cancer called neuroblastoma. And that was one that he had encountered with a similar blood test um, as the signal of a disorder. Um, he sent us to the hospital to get um, some further tests done. And um, in short order, it was clarified that she did not have neuroblastoma, but she did have acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And then we were in the taxi going back from the hospital. Yay, she's only got leukemia. <laughs> this is fantastic news because the odds of recovery from neuroblastoma are at that time were very small. Yeah. The odds of recovery from leukemia are very good. And we were very much aware of that because um, when I went to medical school, the odds of recovery for from childhood leukemia were about 50%, and now they're well above 80%, close to 90%, I think. And so we were aware that the odds were good, and this was a, a bizarre thing to be saying, but it was where we were, yay, it's just leukemia. Yeah, of, of the two, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So that began the journey. What was Liza's understanding of what was wrong? So probably um, some ingredients that are, that are important are that, well, both my wife and I are physicians and psychiatrists. Both our fathers were physicians and their style was a very paternalistic style, which was common in their era. Sure. That is, um, we have the information you don't need the information. We'll take care of it. Don't you worry. Yeah. Which had been relatively infuriating for each of us in relation to our fathers. And so we were not going to repeat that. And probably our orientation as child psychiatrists also orient us to respect the mind and imagination of a child, which includes being concerned that a child will be very observant and very curious and prone to worry. Yeah. So we didn't want to give her no information. We didn't want to give her too much information. We wanted to support her curiosity encourage her to ask whatever she wanted to ask, uh, be ready to answer and be ready to answer more than once. So my recollection of one of the first kinds of discussions 
was with the phrase sick white blood cells. And what would she know about what a white blood cell was? So that involved explaining that a body is made of cells. They're building blocks and there are lots of different kinds of building blocks. Some are in the blood, some are called red blood cells. That's why the blood is red. <laughs> then there are white blood cells that help us stay healthy and fight infections. And any of these cells can get sick or not be functioning properly. And that seems to be the problem with your illness that your blood cells are not working right. My goodness, what was the and, treatment? And, and I'd, I'd say there's, there's um, in an important way, it's the music rather than the words. The words are very important, but the music is, I think, most important. And it's in the music of the interchange between us that Liza would feel I trust, that her curiosity was respected, that her questions were taken seriously, would be answered, and that in the music of our voices was that welcoming, encouragement, taking it seriously, giving as appropriate an answer as we could, and looking for how it landed. And if right. it landed with puzzlement, then so how can we clarify? Or if it landed just with clarity, is there a next question? And if there is, great. And if not now, whenever there's a next question, we're ready and welcoming. So, Phil, tell us, after you told Liza that she had leukemia and she understood it, what was the recommended course of treatment? Well, an important element was what was called the day zero talk. The day zero talk was after they had made the diagnosis and they had us come in. My mother was with us. My mother, Liza, Elena, and I, and we left Liza with my mother in the waiting room, and Elena and I went to um, a little treatment room or sort of larger than usual treatment room that had a circle of desks. It's Elena and I kind of in the center of the uh, ring of, of chairs. And across from us, the attending and the fellow who are our main helpers, but then other people who are supplementary, uh, some nurse practitioners and some medical students. And this is a meeting in which the treatment plan of two years is being laid out to us in some detail. And, and it's really our first chance to ask questions about what we're learning we have to face. Right. Um, I think one of the most important parts there is it was the first opportunity to reckon with a sense of responsibility, a sense of having failed to protect Liza and um, of of raising the question of why does this happen? Yeah. And 
is it something that we could have protected her from? I remember the attending who I feel and felt and feel very fondly toward. Um, there's nothing you did wrong. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the pain of that comes alive as I revisit it here and now with you. Um, it's sort of a unquenchable kind of question uh, informed by the yearning to make it go away, make it better, prevent it from happening. I mean, I remember a lot about this day zero talk and you can cut me off if you want, but um, there were a lot of papers being yeah. sort of sent around the circle. Um, some with calendars, you know, this is what happens here. This is what happens here. I remember that, you know, I admired this. This, is, this was reassuring. This was orderly. You know, I've never heard it called day zero talk before, but that totally makes sense. What did you think in that moment when you heard that the plan was going to be for two years? That's a long time, especially when you're a child. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's hard to go back to that, but um, I think it was a balance of that is an enormous amount of time, but if that gets us to the outcome we want, wonderful. Sure. And so another element of that was um, a decision about research. You know, this is our protocol. This is the standard protocol. And by the way, we're doing research. So if you elect to proceed with the research that we're doing, there are three variations in the standard protocol and you can elect to participate in one, two or three of them. Was this, was this a phase three clinical trial? Was this a full-fledged so. trial? Okay. So did you do the standard of care? Did you go forward with the clinical trial? A little bit of both? What happened? We went forward with the trial. It was a sort of um, intense and uncomfortable decision. Like, how do I know what to do? And also, um, there was, I, I think I felt the sort of paranoid tinge, like, will you really do your best if we only do the standard of care? I'm Where did sure that come you, from? I'm sure you want us to be in your research. Where did that come from, though? Well, we've had medical training. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so and you move forward with the trial. We, we scrambled to talk to people who we thought would be informed. We elected to move forward with the trial. Later, we learned that that just put us into a computer to be randomized. Right. And we were, by, by fluke, we were randomized to the um, part of the study where we did get the experimental treatments. Oh, good. Okay, good. You were not placebo. You actually got We were not placebo, right. We were not yeah. the control group. So good. the first part of the treatment induction went well. And what is that for in layman's terms for people who are watching? It's, well, 
it was intended to be a month in hospital with um, just a very intense regimen of chemotherapy. Uh, Liza lost her hair, her white count went very low. Um, and the bone marrow showed that the uh, leukemic cells were um, basically wiped out. Okay, so good news. So exactly what you want. Uh, this was in the fall. We were leaving the hospital in triumph, home in time for Thanksgiving, our favorite holiday. Oh. The next sort of major bump in the road, besides some minor fevers and infections, was that in response to one of the chemotherapy agents, Liza got pancreatitis. Oh, gosh. Oh. And... So that's very painful. And at first it was not clear what the cause of it was. Um, I have the benefit of hindsight, but at the time it was just very high anxiety. Um, it led to the elimination of one of the six chemotherapy agents that were being used. That was a little scary. The word was, that happens. The odds are still very good for cure. Then the next bump in the road was that she got a fungal infection. So bacterial oh. infections are difficult, but fungal infections are sort of, in a way, more difficult to eradicate. And the antifungal medications have problems of their own, of course. Right. And it's hard to decide whether to maintain chemotherapy, which is going to reduce one's infection fighting capacity when one has a fungal infection and you need to the, eliminate the fungal infection. Yeah, you need to fight it. Right. So chemotherapy needs to be suspended. That's scary turn our attention to fight the fungal infection. As you're probably aware, for a kid especially, there's an indwelling catheter that's placed to make giving the chemotherapy manageable. Which talking is, about a port of some kind? Yes, uh -huh. yeah. Mm, yeah, sure. But with a fungal infection, that has to be removed. Oh, gosh, really? Because something artificial, a foreign body, is a place where a, an infection sort of can land and be near impossible to eradicate. So yeah. as part and parcel of fighting the infection, got to get rid of that line, fight the infection, cure the infection, put a new line in. So did it, all that happen? All that happened, unfortunately, it happened more than once because she had a recurrent fungal infection. Another line had to be removed, so on like that. So, oh my so this period of time was a roller coaster with uh, pancreatitis coming, resolving, and coming back later and resolving. Fungal infection, same thing. Appearing, being eradicated, then later coming back, being eradicated again. Through this time, the chemotherapy had some interruptions. About a year into treatment, um, 
to boil it down, the leukemia recurred. Okay. So this was horrible and put us into a different category. Relapse leukemia is sort of a diagnostic division of its own. In all the conversations up to here, there would be allusions to it's possible the leukemia will recur. And if that happens, don't worry about it now. But we know we have things to do if that happens. How um, old was Liza at this point? Well, it was right near her fourth birthday that her initial diagnosis happened. So it was at her when she was five that her recurrence occurred. So it comes back now, as you said, you're in a different category. So right. what do you do? So we have a conversation with the maven of recurrent leukemia at the medical center we're at. He lays out their plan for treating recurrent leukemia and is completely open about, you know, if we want to get a second opinion, that's fine. And we got a second opinion at a different medical center. And their approach was slightly different. Okay. And their awesome. experience was slightly different. And I'm not sure it's worth going into all the details, but it was another sort of agonizing decision point. Uh, one decision point that had a small amount of agony was whether to participate in the research this was another and maybe more excruciating decision because we felt very attached and uh, a lot of love for the caregivers that we'd encountered at hospital number one and hated to step away from them into the unknown, but a variety of reasons caused us to feel like it was best to go to the second medical center. That's what we did. Okay. Um, and I remember the element of um, explaining this to Liza and just feeling her, her faith in us to make a good decision. So, so what did that second round, it's not even the best word, what did that treatment look like? You go to the this, new medical Basically, center. it was bone marrow transplant. Oh, okay. All right. And, and there was a rigmarole about testing relatives and extended relatives to see if there might be um, a, a match with a yeah. living related donor. Um, but in the end, we had a, a donor from the registry um, okay. who was unknown to us. As you're probably well aware, total body irradiation in preparation for the um, bone marrow transplant. There was a, a special unit for bone marrow transplant yeah. at this hospital, um, which was, you know, very impressive and sort of dazzling in the measures that they took to prevent infection and um, and the whole yeah. rigmarole about how you. Uh, clean yourself and, you know, as if scrubbing for surgery before you go into the room. They 
showed a sensitivity to Liza's needs by allowing Elena and I to tag team staying overnight in the bone marrow transplant unit with her, which oh, was very great. much appreciated. Yeah, of course. So she was there for a long time. I forget how long exactly, but um, it seemed like the transplant was taking. Okay. The biggest complication was graft versus host disease. The transplanted bone marrow, which includes white blood cells that we want to uh, flourish in her body and become her new capacity to fight infection and do all the ordinary things that white blood cells are supposed to do. Those white blood cells recognize parts of Liza's body as a different body than the one yeah. in which they um, came from. So they respond to that difference by attacking those cells. And that leads to um, a variety of symptoms. The most prominent for her were a rash and, an, and a rash that itched and sort of was torturously itching. So to deal with graft versus host disease, we have a variety of medications that are meant to sort of interfere with the functioning of those white blood cells. We want the white blood cells, but we want to control the white blood cells. We want to prevent them doing harm and empower them to do good. Um, and, and steroids are one of the medications that um, treat graft-versus-host disease. They have a world of side effects of their own. Yes, they uh, do. Some are psychological. Um, so Liza had already had some experience with steroids from the first year of treatment. And they could be crazy making. She would pick her fingernails. You know, that's probably something that I'd have trouble with on a good day. But knowing that we had to be careful about infection, that was particularly difficult to see because it seemed like she was creating a site for an infection. Right, right. So, so how long did that go on? Well, graft-versus-host disease was part of the picture, I'd say, from the third or fourth week after the transplant on through the next seven months of treatment. Oh, and my gosh. Oh. the medication sometimes controlled it well, sometimes not so well. At one point, Liza had a seizure and it was a seizure that did not stop so-called status epilepticus an unending seizure oh, that was gosh. frightening led us to the emergency room and an, an immediate admission and it turned out that the cause of that was one of the drugs to treat graft versus host disease was accumulating in her central nervous system. And fortunately, it was a reversible problem. But, you know, there again, the thing that we thought was helping 
turned out to be hurting. Hurting, yeah. So that drug was eliminated. And still there were some other drugs. And there was a treatment that we learned about called PUVA. It's some acronym for ultraviolet light to be used to um, basically kill off the specific white blood cells that were causing the graft-versus-host disease. And Liza would be in a little booth, a UV light booth, and um, the bright lights would come on. I've never been in a tanning uh, salon <laughs> or a tanning experience, but I think it's something like that. Wow. And um, I remember she was very uh, endearing when she first saw this booth and uh, she and I and Elena went over to see, you know, what's this treatment look like? And Liza looks at this booth and says, well, how am I going to get the bottoms of my feet? Because <laughs> the feet and the hands are some of the most intense, rashy places with graft-versus-host disease. And then she basically says, oh, I know, and offers the solution, which is to have a folding chair in the little booth which can just fit in there and she'll kneel on the folding chair and she'll like do a little workout it's like she's going to raise her left hand hold on to the back of the chair with her right hand and oh my her feet goodness. will be you know up in the air and then she'll switch hands so that she had it all figured out she did <laughs> And she was proud. We were proud of her. She was proud of herself. And yeah. So that helped for a while, it seemed. Was there ever a point where you knew that she was not going to survive? That comes sort of in the next chapter. Okay. Because the thing that happened, I guess, next basically was um, in a routine bone marrow, uh, the, the finding was that the leukemic cells were back. So she had had her, another recurrence. And that at that point, we learned that she was terminal. I'm so sorry. Yeah. What the, did you do that, then? Now that I... I remember what happened was she had more and more pain mm. and um, the, the cause of the pain could be a variety of things, but uh, the bone marrow showed that the leukemic cells were back. What did you tell her about that? Well, the doctor who was our primary provider at that point had a meeting with Elaine and I where we received the news. And knowing us and knowing Liza as she did, she knew that we would want to tell Liza. And she suggested that um, she be the one to tell Liza. Which Why is that? I think to, as a way to offer 
us support and to make it easier for us. How did Liza respond? She was very quiet. Mm. The doctor said the sick white blood cells are back. And again, it's the music too, right? It's not just the words, but Liza, I'm sure, was reading the doctor's face, mm -hmm. our face. We weren't sobbing. We had been sobbing with the doctor in Liza's absence. But, you know, a face that has been sobbing is something that an alert person can see. The sure. doctor also was tearing up. So... Um, I don't think she asked the doctor anything. But then she did ask us stuff. Mostly it was a sequence where um, she said, I, I don't remember how much she asked us when we were together that afternoon, but in keeping with our style, it was... Elena's night to stay in the hospital that night. And then the next night it was my night to stay in the hospital. And she asked us each a bevy of questions, almost identical. It was almost like seeming, a test. Seemingly needing to see that there was consistency and yeah. looking for any, any inconsistency. Wow. Um, she asked um, if they were sure she offered to have another bone marrow biopsy in case they got it wrong. Um, she asked if, uh, she asked how long would she had to live and um, it's a little bit blurry in my mind when we knew what and when we said what, but I think, um, I think it was, we don't know how long. Yeah. Um, that changed. I can tell you about a conversation that we had a little bit later, but um, I don't, I think it hasn't come up yet that Liza loved cows. Cows? Cows, yeah. <laughs> um, when, when she was little, two-ish or three-ish, um, there was a craze of Beanie Baby um, little stuffed animals. Yeah, I remember the Beanie Babies, and, yeah. Um, and, you know, we were giving them occasionally, but... Um, I think she was very fond of the first cow she got. My wife got a bag of, I think, three or four Beanie Baby cows <laughs> to be ready in case. And then Liza found the bag. <laughs> so she had all of them. All of them. <laughs> and then when she got sick a year later or whatever, um, the thing that was sure to be a hit as a gift, as a sort of get well token, would be some kind of cow. 
sure. or anything cow related. So she had accumulated many, many cows. At one point, I think this was before she got sick, she said, you know, why can't we get a real cow? <laughs> and our somewhat disingenuous answer was, maybe when you're a teenager. I'm bringing that up because one of her ways of expressing her pain about uh, the shortness of her life was to say, I'll never get to have my cowie. Oh, gosh. That was one of, one of the questions to which we said, that's right. That's true. Oh. I'll never get to be a mommy. Oh, my gosh. That's true. My sister, Molly, Molly will get to have all my toys. How old was your other daughter during this? Three years older. So seven when Liza was diagnosed and nine when Liza died. What kind of impact do you think it had on her then and now? That's a complicated question. I'm certain it had an enormous impact. And I'm certain that I don't know, that there's a lot I don't know about the impact. Right. Partly just because she's her own complex person. Um, Do you ever talk about it with her? We have talked about it some, but um, when I went on to do some writing about this whole experience and shared it with my daughter, she registered sort of that she was proud of me and grateful for what I had captured and also clear this is my recollection. This is my experience of what happened. Right. This is not her experience or her recollection of what's happened. Right. So, you know, I experience her as a more private person than Liza. Partly that's a different style in their personalities. And partly that's because I think it's ordinary for a teenager to become relatively private relative to their parents. But she wasn't a teenager when Liza died. No, no. She was very much with us when Liza, um, you know, sort of the night Liza died, uh, Elena and I were forming a V in bed and Liza was lying between us taking her last breaths and Molly was sleeping at the foot of the bed. And the oh next morning goodness. when um, Liza finally completed the dying process, um, Elena with Molly and me assisting washed Liza's body and oh. uh, put her in sort of her final outfit uh, so she was very much with us. Um, yeah, there's some, some beautiful moments between them when we t 
told Liza that um, we thought her death was coming close. She said, I need to talk to two people, Molly and Cleveth, the babysitter who had been with her all her life. And oh. it was uh, late at night and we called Cleveth and she came from Queens or Brooklyn to, uh, to come see Liza. And Molly was upstairs in their bedroom and um, I went to uh, get her to come down and she sat, Liza basically asked her to sit right in front of her. And she said, um, we think it's time that I'm dying. And I want you to know that I really love you. Oh. And yeah. Such an awareness. Oh yeah. gosh. How do you look at your life differently now? Not, not only as a parent, but as a physician. I guess that the ways that I carry this are to appreciate how invulnerability is a delusion. We're all utterly vulnerable in so many ways all the time. Yeah. And it's it's not practical practical to keep that in mind at top of mind all the time, but it's in my mind in a way that it never was before mm. all the time. Wow. And then the companion to that is that in the face of vulnerability, we can help each other so much. We have so much to offer to support us in that state of vulnerability. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why? Um, only one thing? Yeah, you only I, get I, one. <laughs> I, think, I think the one thing that I would put emphasis on is that the forces of palliative care typically a person who is the palliative care provider, that person would be present from the day zero talk, from the beginning. From oh, the I totally agree. Totally agree. I never mm -hmm. even heard the phrase palliative care. Never heard it. There, there wasn't a palliative care specialist. And my sister was seen at one of the top children's hospitals in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There probably is now, but there wasn't yeah. then. Sad that that's late, late in coming to our system. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, oh, that is Again, so makes insightful. such a difference in terms of appreciating the experience of the patient, the experience of the providers, and not leaving that off to the margin, but sort of embracing it because that's where we have a much easier time having an impact yeah. to help somebody with anxiety or pain or itchiness or um, you know, things like that. Phil, are you ready to switch gears and do the Thriver rapid fire questions? 
We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? I guess I'll offer you the phrase full of wonder. Mm. Okay. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Well, there's a song that I've encountered. It's called G Song by Terry Riley. Okay. Composer. It's got no lyrics. Okay. It's played by the Kronos Quartet, among others. I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but it touches me very deeply. And it's what I wanted to hear around Liza's funeral service. And it carries for me an appreciation of the deepest pain, but also the deepest beauty the deepest everything. I guess I have some view that the most important things all have the same source, love, Mm. suffering, joy. And for me, that piece of music takes me there. What about the last meal you wanna eat? Uh, I kind of don't care, but uh, (laughs) peaches and corn on the cob are some of my favorite things. Those don't really go together, but I'll give it to you. They don't really go together, but (laughs) if I have, if I can take my time, I'll just. (laughs) The last person or people you want to see? Well, my children and my wife. Yeah. And aside from cancer, you what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also, please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Well. Thank you for uh, supporting my taking this opportunity to share with you about my book, the book that I wrote about Liza. It was a long time coming. The title is A Short Good Life. And um, when did the book come out? It came out in late August of oh, okay. oh, wow. 2021. Wow. Yeah. So very recently. And um it has a companion website, which is okay. ashortgoodlife.com. All right. Um, on the website, there's a page relating to my practice as a psychotherapist. There is also a way to communicate with me through that website. Okay, so great. ashortgoodlife.com is the easiest way to make contact with me. Okay, we will put a link to your book and to the website in the show notes and the workshop notes. Phil, thank you so much for coming on and sharing Liza's story, but also really sharing your story too. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm pleased to meet you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button. 
or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.